Morning, church. How are you? You ready to go? You've been staying warm in this abnormally cold summer we're having? I am just miserable every moment of every day right now. Am I alone in this? Like, uh, we start, uh, I coach football, and I know you're out there thinking, obviously, look at you. Um, <laughs> look at that guy's physique, probably played at a high level, maybe professionally. I get the same looks when I tell people that that I do when I tell them I worked at a gym in high school and college. And, and I tell them I worked the juice bar in the gym. They're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, but football practice is about to start. We're doing, uh, and I keep telling myself I need to get used to the heat to go outside. But it's just too hot to get used to this heat. And so I stay inside. I've been fighting at everything within me. But um, I do want to just say to you how thankful I am to get to do this. Um, uh, I, I get really nervous. I want you to know this is not naturally easy for me. Um, I always, the week before I teach, I always at some point in that week have a dream where everything goes wrong on a Sunday morning. And I didn't have that dream until last night. And it was the worst. I got up here. I forgot my shirt. Um, <laughs> uh, the passage was all wrong. So I hadn't studied it. And they were like, tell us about this guy you're talking about. And I was like, I don't know about him. And they're like, well, you're supposed to know the Bible. So half of you got up and left. And I was like, this is going well. Three or four people came and sat up here and just started asking me questions. And I was like, all right. So the fact that you're still in here right now, I feel like I've already won today. Like we have already better. Yeah, yeah, we can clap. This is already better than what it's going to be. I want you to know how grateful I am for these opportunities, that I, I don't take you as a church for granted. I'm so thankful. If you don't know me, my name is Caleb Kinney, and I uh, am allowed to teach here from time to time. Thanks to thankful to Tim and Micah that allow me to get to do that. I love this church very much. It's the first church. I grew up, my father was a pastor, and then I've worked in churches. And this is the first church that my wife and I have ever uh, decided to go to on our own. And so this is a very special place for us. And I do not take you for granted in the opportunity to do this. So um, if I seem excited, it's because I am. And it's because I love to get to do this. And I love to get to teach and to learn with you and study with you. So I hope you're excited to go with me. And that's why I talk really, really fast. And you're just going to have to keep up. Are you ready to go? You need a Bible and a pen, and I get, tell you to get a pen. I don't give you an opportunity to write a lot of stuff down, but just, you know, do what you can. You ready to go? Psalm 56. We are in our fourth week in our study of the book of Psalms, and uh, there are 150 of these bad boys. So to say we're going to leave some out would be an understatement of a lifetime. We are doing six psalms, and of the six psalms that we're doing, we're just scratching the surface of everything that is in those psalms. And so our prayer for this study is that these psalms would make you want to read other psalms. And those psalms would make you want to read some of the other parts of the book that have to do with what these psalms are about. And all of those things would make us want to love people more than we do today. Amen? Would you agree? So, we have spent the past few weeks. We started with Psalm 100. Tim got up here and he spoke to us about Psalm 100 and how this is a very human book and how we give praise to God because God deserves our praise because he is our king. Then we looked at Psalm 34, and that was me a couple weeks ago. You're going to get a lot of me this series. And so if you're tired of me, you're not complaining loud enough. So let it be known. So um, we looked at Psalm 34. We looked at David, and he's hanging out in a cave with some friends, and he writes the psalm all about being delivered and all about calling out to a God who hears us. And we looked at that. Last week we looked at Psalm 51 and the story of David and Bathsheba and his sin against God and Uriah. What an incredible psalm. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to, uh, we're on iTunes now because we're big time around here at OKC Community. Um, my niece was like, so like everyone around the world can listen to you? I'm like, yeah, all four people. Um, <coughs> and so 
We looked at Psalm 51. I love Psalm 51 so much. It's such a human psalm of this sin and this confession and redemption story. And I find it so fascinating that from the time David sinned with Bathsheba until he wrote Psalm 51 when Nathan approached him and confronted him, David, the song leader, the worship leader, um, didn't sing any songs. And from the time David sinned until Psalm 51 was about one year where the kingdom of God was dead silent. No praise, no worship, no singing. That's the power that is in some of these psalms. And then when he was renewed and restored, we have all of these wonderful things that we studied last week. Which brings us to Psalm 56. And Psalm 56 is a beautiful little psalm. And when we were deciding which ones we wanted to do when we were doing this series, I knew I wanted to do Psalm 34. And I said, well, if I do Psalm 34, I have to do Psalm 56. And you're going to see that uh, why in a moment. But this is the beginning of a little cluster of psalms that are put together. Um, the book of Psalms is not chronologically written. And so that's one thing people take out. They're like, well, this was way later and this is way earlier. It's not chronologically placed. These are grouped together. Some are by David in his early life, later life. Some are written by some other people. Some have to do, they're prophetic. They're all about Jesus. Some are all about like the Antichrist and crazy stuff like that if you're interested. There's all sorts of things. This is a group of psalms. They're called the Miktam Psalms. Say it with Miktam. That was okay. Say it with me. Miktam. Yeah, you're going to remember that if you don't remember anything. Miktam Psalms. Miktam, they're called golden psalms. The word actually means engraven. These were psalms that were carved into stone. And they did that so that the words wouldn't be misinterpreted. They were engraven, enduring, substantial. These psalms were important. They didn't want them to be misquoted, misinterpreted, or misunderstood. So from Psalm 56 to Psalm 60, these are called Miktam psalms, golden psalms, carved into stone. Because that's what they did then. They didn't have the cloud back then, so they had to do it a different way. So, like many of the other psalms, what's going on in this, this story is actually found earlier in the book. Like Psalm 51, we can find that with David and Bathsheba. And here we go. If you remember two weeks ago, Psalm 34, we talked about David on the run from two kings, and he is gathering in a cave. One of the reasons I want to do this psalm is it actually takes place from that exact same story. The exact same event happening in David's life, we can find the account here in Psalm 56. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago and you didn't know the story, or if you were here two weeks ago and uh, haven't thought about it since you left, you're not alone. I asked my wonderful, beautiful, smart wife what happened in that story in 1 Samuel, and she was like, um, I think it was David, and she got like 60% right, which is right on. So I thought we would revisit it, and she heard it twice. Come on, babe. Um, she loves me, I promise. Um, so I thought, let's just revisit the passage, shall we? Let's just see what was going on why this psalm is written the way it is. And what I find is when we know what's happening in David's life, it brings the psalm way more to life. And that's what we're going to see with Psalm 56. And actually, it will change the way you view Psalm 34, which is why we're hanging out here this morning. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 10. You ready to go? Yeah. Let's get after it, church. The day, uh, then David arose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slayed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? I don't know if they chanted it like that, but that's how I read the book. So, um, verse 12. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands, and then scribbled on the doors of the gates, and let saliva run down into his beard, which happens to me when I teach. Verse 14, 
Then the servant, uh, then they, then Achish said to his servants, and uh, this is what I always do. Uh, people always ask me what my life verse is, and I can never choose because I'm like, I don't know. So I always throw them really random verses that they can't figure out what they mean. So this is one of the verses I give people when they ask me a life verse. They're like, um, Achish said, behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? And they're like, oh, what's the theology behind that? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's funny. Uh, verse 15. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act mad in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? He's like, this guy's crazy. Why are you bringing him here? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there was all this superstition. When somebody was insane or crazy, you wouldn't want to kill this person or eliminate them. You wanted to get them as far away from you as possible. They believe, we'll call it karma, that if I did something to this guy, very many bad things are going to happen to me, which is why in the New Testament, when you see that as a man possessed by demons, he's living amongst the tombs. They don't know what to do with them. They're just afraid that if they do the wrong thing with them, Many bad things will come upon their house. So like, what do they do? So David goes crazy. It's a pretty clever plan. Next verse. Uh, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men and women there with him. And once those people gathered, as we saw two weeks ago, and, and Psalm 34, once those 400 people gathered, he wrote Psalm 34. And it was written to the people who had gathered in the cave, people who are just like you and me. And that's what we studied. Now, from the time of, put 22 back up there, could you? Uh, from the time that he went, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And that space, from the time he got to the cave, and from the time they all gathered to him, David wrote Psalm 56. So, Psalm 56, written right before he writes Psalm 34, which in a minute, once we study this, will give all sorts of more life to Psalm 34. Because Psalm 34, he's talking about how God delivered me. Well, if you're David and you're all alone in a cave and God brings you 400 people, you would say, I was delivered. Guys, the Bible will change the way you read the Bible. The more you know about it will change the way the book impacts you and the way you read it. Those people who say, how do you read a boring book like the Bible? They're not reading the Bible. It is an exciting, alive, moving book. And the more we know about it, the more other parts of it will come alive to us. So it'll change the way you read Psalm 34, but we're not talking about that today, Caleb, and you've already been up here for 10 minutes. Let's go. I'm hungry, and I want to see if Jordan Spieth wins the Open. So let's go. Psalm 56, verse one, it says, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O most high. David wastes no time. I feel like there's a lot of times we pray. A lot of our prayers sound the same way at the beginning. You agree? Dear God, thank you for this day. Thanks for all you've given me. Now here's what I need. Am I alone in this? Like, you sit down and pray, dear God, thank you for this day. Help this Big Mac to actually be healthy in some shape, form, or fashion. Amen. Um, so, our prayers start the same way. David wastes no time in this prayer. He's like, I don't have time to mess around with thanking God for the weather. I got to get right into it. He says, be merciful to me, O God. David understood. Remember, he's on the run from two kings, Saul and the king of the Philistines. He understands that the only advantage that David has against his enemies is his relationship with God. The only power that David has in this moment is the power of prayer and his relationship with God. David believing that God existed 
did absolutely nothing for David in this situation. Believing that God was there. See, David understood that, yeah, there are men who are trying to kill me, but, you know, my battle isn't against flesh and blood. New Testament tells us that. It is against the arrows and the schemes of the evil one. Believing that God exists, I said this a few weeks ago, all that does is make you not an atheist. The question isn't, do you believe in God? The question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And that's a very, very different thing. David understood that him calling out to God was the only advantage we have. And there are people who live life and they believe in God. That gives you no advantage over the enemy and everything that's going to happen to you. The only advantage you have is if you engage in a relationship with Jesus. You have a God whom which you interact with and can call to. So who do we call to? It says, for there are many who fight against me, O most high. David understood that the two kings that were attacking him, they sat on thrones that were high above their kingdoms. They had all power and authority to do anything and everything that they wanted to do. And that included killing David. So when David needs to call out for help, he's got to call to a place that's higher than the thrones of the king. And maybe that's why the Bible, when it talks about our king, our God, it says he's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Friends, and I believe there's a lot of us in the church that we have, we have really shrunk Jesus down into somebody who fits in our pocket. That we pull him out when we need his help. We even unlock him like a cell phone with that little prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Here's what I need. And we put him back in our pocket until we need him again. But friends, it's encouraging to remember that the God we call to sits on the throne above every throne. The God who intercedes on our behalf and the one who desires a relationship with us is a God who claims the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's important to remember that sometimes we call out to a God who is almost high and should be remembered as that. Verse 3. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? David, uh, the young shepherd who a lion attacks his sheep, and David kills the lion. Uh, David, who is tending his flock, and a bear stumbles in his camp, kills the bear. David, who as a young boy goes to visit his brothers in the camp, and he there's a, you know, a Philistine champion on the field taunting the Israelite army, grabs a few rocks and hits him right in the face and kills him right there, dead, and chops off his head. That David, the David who is the young captain in the Israelite army, is sitting here, and he is, how is he described? Afraid. This verse, Psalm 56, 3, has been more impactful to my life the past three years than any other verse in all of scripture. Two years ago, uh, about two and a half years ago, we were about to go to Walt Disney World, right? Pretty excited. Um, we were about to go to Disney World, and the night before we were supposed to leave, about 10 hours before we were supposed to leave, I had an anxiety attack, and I wound up in the emergency room that night, and it was bad. Couldn't, couldn't get under control, and I was in the emergency room, and I kept saying to my wife over and over, I kept saying, um, I kept apologizing, and I kept telling her how I failed her, I said, I failed you. I failed you as a husband. I failed Roslyn as a father. I failed. And I kept saying, I failed my family. I failed my parents. I failed, I kept saying this, and I said, I failed my small group badly. So my small group were in here. I failed you. And then I was saying this in the, in the ER. I kept saying, I failed OKC Community Church. I failed. I let them all down. Because I wasn't supposed to feel these feelings. I wasn't supposed to be afraid because if I was afraid, I wasn't just trusting in God. 
And so I failed you. And I, I may, I, I, I'm a failure. Knowing what the Bible says is unbelievably important if we are going to have any impact on the world around us. I had unintentionally been taught incorrectly about the Bible. I had been taught that the reason I was afraid, and when if I were to tell anybody that I was feeling fears or anxieties, their answer is always the same. Just give it to God. Trust in God. And I'm sitting here like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. I never thought this miserable fire in my brain that I can't shake, I should give that to God. I just love it. I had been told my whole life that Caleb, if you're struggling with this, if you're afraid of this, if you have any fear, you just got to give it to God. And that didn't make me feel close to God. That actually made me feel like I was doing something wrong. In fact, I worked at a church where we would have worship services once a month, and they would stand up there on Wednesday nights and proclaim over the room, and they would say, for those children of God, there's no spirit of fear in this room. And I would sit out there as a staff member and say, well, then what is wrong with me? Why do I have fear? Why do I have anxiety? I must be doing something wrong. And it didn't make me feel close to God. It made me feel separated from God, like I failed God, so I let my family down. But you know what I've studied? You know what I read? That David, who did all these things, says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I heard a brilliant theologian write a couple months ago. He said, fear and faith can actually occupy the same space. And fear brings out faith. But what happens when we communicate to the world that if you're dealing with fear, you're just not trusting in God, you've got to give it to God, that doesn't actually help them, it actually hurts them. It makes them feel like they're failing in their faith with God. You know what it doesn't work? It doesn't work to go up to the single mom whose husband's abandoned her and her children and she's worried and stressed out about how she's going to financially and emotionally support that kid. If I go up to them and tell her the reason you're feeling those feelings is you're just not trusting God enough, you shouldn't worry, then she feels more like a what? A failure. That's an American message that we've given. That kid whose father abandoned her or him and grows up and is engaged and about to get married, who's constantly worried that their spouse is going to leave them, it does them no good for you and I to walk up to them and say, you just got to put more trust in God. You shouldn't have this fear. Then that makes them feel like a what? A failure. That they're doing something wrong. I can't go to a Haitian orphanage and tell those children they shouldn't be afraid. They should just trust in God. See, what we love to do is we love to read verse 4 where it says, In God I've put my trust, I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? But you have to understand that fear brings out our faith. If you have no fear, you're probably a narcissist and unaware of everything that's going on in your world. Fear brings out our faith. And we have to be so careful. Do you understand that Jesus says, I want to meet you in your fear, in your anxiety, in your lust, in your addiction, in your anger, in your greed, in your pride. I want to meet you and I want you to bring all the junk you have. That's, that's the Jesus we serve. And the message we're giving to the world is you got to get it right. And if the things aren't going right, that means there's something wrong with you and God. And that's the wrong message. Friends, when I'm afraid, that's when I trust in God. I was so ashamed of who I was. I don't like talking about this now. I'm actually very nervous to talk about this in front of you because it makes me really vulnerable, and I don't like that. I'd rather just talk to you about the golf match and just be on our way. But I carried so much shame that I have anxiety. And, and, and here, I don't have a breakthrough to tell you that I've, I, I'm no longer anxious. I am. I struggle with it all the time. 
But here's what I know. I'm not failing because I have fear. Wouldn't it be dumb if I would have gone up to David and you know, he's on the run for two kings and be like, dude, why are you afraid? Trust in God. <laughs> he's like, they're literally shooting arrows at my face. That's why I'm afraid. <laughs> John 3.16 does me nothing today. <laughs> faith or fear brings out our faith. If you're in here, and you know what I've learned out of my two years, I've been working on this. I, I meet with uh, counseling all the time. You know what I've learned? Everyone in this room has anxieties and fears. Every single person in this room has an anxiety and a fear. And if you're blocking that out because you think it's wrong, stop doing that. I pushed my anxiety away for 27 years, and it crippled me. My wife didn't know it about me. I didn't share it with her because I was so ashamed. My parents, I pushed it away. All of us have fears about finances, fears about how you're going to raise your kids. You have fears of how your kids are going to turn out. Will you ever find a partner in life? Will you be able to have children? Am I in the right job? Is the job I'm in going, what kind of person am I going to be in 30 years? Is that who I want to be? Of course you have fears and anxieties. You aren't doing anything wrong. You know what you are? Human. And you know what you have a need for? Jesus. Fear brings out our faith, friends. It's okay to live in that and to lean on one another. And the more you push it down, the more you hide it, the more you're hurting yourself, and the more we don't know what's in the book. And this is one example of literally tens of thousands of things that we can, if we don't have knowledge of what's between these covers of this book, we can miscommunicate unintentionally. I don't think anybody wanted me to end up in the ER and to miss my Disney World vacation. But that's what happened. Because I had been miscommunicated that I wasn't allowed to feel, feel fear. If I was feeling fear, I wasn't trusting in God. This is not the case. We've got to move forward. We don't have time. Just give me one of these next time, okay? It says, there it is again, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. And man, we don't have enough time for this, but uh, my dad and I were talking about how did David, well, why was David so confident in God's word? And this is just a cool little serious tangent, but where did David learn the book? Because he didn't have Psalms. He was writing it. You know what I mean? How did he learn it? We think he probably learned it from his great-grandma. He would probably have conversations with his great-grandma. Uh, David's great-grandma was a woman named Ruth. Ruth's got her own book in here. And we think that's really cool. How did he learn it? See, Ruth married a man named Boaz. And Boaz's mother was a woman named Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute, and she lived in a city of Jericho. And Rahab was living in Jericho where they worshipped all kinds of other gods. And Rahab heard of the things going on in, in Egypt. And all of these Israelites had been led out of Egypt. And she was floored by how did that happen? It must be the God of the Israelites led them out of Egypt. So she abandoned all of her gods and put her faith in a God she had literally never even heard of other than these people getting out of Egypt. And then one day Rahab's in her house and those Israelites show up outside of the walls of Jericho. And I imagine her telling Boaz and Ruth about one day these men started walking around our city. And on the seventh day, they shouted really loud and the walls came tumbling down and God spared her life and God gave her a son and his name was Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth. And they had a son named Obed. And they had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. The Bible is really cool. If you just Maybe you don't think that's cool. Maybe that's just weird me. I don't know. But I think it's really cool. We can say we trust God. But how do we know we trust God unless we're confident in his word? 
Look, what would have happened? When Jesus was tempted by the devil three times, what did he do every time? He quoted what? He didn't quote the Beatles in a great song. He quoted scripture. Three times that he was tempted, and every time he threw verses back at the devil. If Jesus, Jesus is using scripture to fight against the enemy, then why are you and I trying to do it any other way? It's probably because we have a lack of knowledge of what's in the book. I'm not talking about understanding, and that's the biggest excuse I give myself. My biggest excuse I give myself of why I don't spend more time in the Bible is because I don't understand it all, and I'll never understand it all. I'm not talking about understanding. I'm talking about do you know the stories that are from cover to cover? Do you know, just do we have any knowledge of what's in there? Knowledge will bring forth confidence. We've got to move forward. What can flesh, it says, I, in God I put my trust, I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? What's our instinct to that? A lot. <laughs> what can the world do to us? No one walks around being like, what can the world do to me? Nothing. No, our response is, it can do a lot. The flesh can do a lot. I wouldn't have been in the ER had I not been worried about anything. Ah, it's just the world. No, no big deal. What can they do to me? A lot. I'm like five foot nine, 130 pounds. Come on. Like, it can do a lot to me. But when we know the book, we can take confidence in the book. You see, in Ephesians 1, it says, for the earth's foundation was laid, he was going to adopt you and make you holy and blameless in his sight. So friends, whether difficult days or good days, God will not abandon you in your difficult season. He will not abandon you. If before the earth's foundation was laid, he was going to adopt you and make you holy and blameless, then we can say, what can flesh do to me? Before there was flesh, he was claiming us. That's where our confidence comes from. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It says, all day long they twist my words. Verse 5, all their thoughts are against me for evil. David was having to watch everything he said. He was under attack from two kings, just waiting for him to slip up, to give them another reason to kill him and to proclaim that he was saying things that weren't okay. Maybe that's why he carved these into the walls. He's like, I can't let these words be twisted. Um, and this is the same for us today. I mean, are believers not, I mean, how many Christians' words get taken out of context? I mean, is this anything new? Have you ever been baited in a conversation? Tim gave this example last fall, and I loved it. And he was talking about the political climate and things like that were going on, and it's still true today. And, and people always want to know, and they're having, engaging in conversations. Paul writes a lot about useless talk that we won't get into, but people are having conversations, and they want to know, and they say, well, what do you think? And Tim gave this example, and he would say, well, why do you want to know what I think? And usually the reason they want to know what we think is because they know we go to church and we believe in God. And he's like, well, because you go to church and you believe in God. That's the conversation I have when I have. Why do I believe in God? You see, people want to get our opinion on things and things in this world, but you know what kind of conversation I want to have? The real conversation, why do you want my opinion? You want my opinion because I believe in God. Well, why do I believe in God? That's having the kingdom on our lips. There's a time and a place to speak for and against things. Absolutely but not at the expense of the kingdom. The kingdom should always be on our lips, but all day long they will try to twist words. It says, you number my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There's this really cool old ancient custom of gathering tears and placing them at the tombs of loved ones that I wish we had time for, but we just don't. Um, you number my wanderings. Um, again, there's a need to know scripture and the promises of God. This I know. Right here it says, when I cry out to you, the enemies will turn back. In the end of verse 9, it says, this I know because God is for me. David's confidence 
came from an understanding and a remembering what God had done for him. David, time and time and time again, had to see, even back to his great, 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 great grandmother Rahab, could see what God had done for him. His confidence came in knowing. And do you not realize how much more confident we should be in what God will do? David didn't have the beginning of the book and he didn't have the end of it. Friends, do you want to know how all of this will end? You know why you can have confidence for today? You want me to tell you how all of this life and everything will end? Revelation chapter 5 says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creature and the elder. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and praise forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's how this all ends. That's why we have confidence with our today. That's why when we lack confidence, it's because we lack knowledge of the book. If I know how it's going to end, and I am confident in that, and I know how the book has gone, I can look back on 29 years, I'm not 30 yet, 29 years, I got like three weeks, of what God has done in my life, I can be confident about tomorrow. If I know what he's going to, I know how it's going to end. You know how this all ends? 10,000 times 10,000, encircling the lamb who was slain, exalting him to the highest place, reclaiming our God is almost high, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all power and glory and honor forever and ever and ever belong to him. That tells us we should have confidence uh, this morning. We should have confidence. We should claim that confidence because we, we got the end of the book. We know where it's going. Said God is for me. You know, Paul relied on this truth, didn't he? If you want to write this down, Romans 8.31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who on earth? I, I, mean, I mean, there's other parts, verses in the Bible that says, what court would even bring a charge against us if God is for us? What court would they hold it in? It's all God's. It all belongs to him. Verse 10. We're almost done. Verse 10. In God. Are you getting the importance of the Bible? Listen to this part. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. What do you think is important to know, church? His word. Do you know it well enough? His word is important. We praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? One of my favorite things. One of my favorite stories is when Martin Luther hang, hung his Reformation up on that wall, boom, and proclaimed what he did. One of his friends came to him, and the emperor and the pope declared ruin on Martin Luther's life. That's a big deal, okay? The man comes up to him, and he says, Sir Luther, he says, what are you going to do? The emperor and the pope have declared ruin on your life. You know what his response was? He said, I care for neither of them. I know in whom I've trusted. Confidence in the word of God. That's why we don't fear. Because we know in whom we've trusted. Verse 12. Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. There's a lot we could talk about. We don't have time. We often dive into the Bible when things are going wrong. Seeking out the promises that God has made to us. That will help us in our time of need. And we should do that. But all throughout the Psalms, we see something that isn't done pretty much anywhere else in the Bible. 
It's the psalmist making promises to God. Because that's a relationship. How many vows have you made to God? Are you just really thankful he's made a lot to you? Think about a vow. What would a vow look like to God? Lord, I want to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I made a vow to you to be married to my wife. And those other things people put before their eyes, I'm not going to do that. Those other opportunities to face temptation, nope, not me. Those things that are of this world, I chose to follow you and honor you and give you. What promises have you ever made to God? Have you ever made one? What would it look like for you to make a promise to God? All right, how does this psalm end? I didn't give you a lot of time to write anything down, but I'll say this. There's three things, three things for this psalm for us. Psalm 13, or Psalm 56, verse 13, it gives us three ways this psalm should help us live. It begins with, this psalm ends with gratitude. First thing is gratitude. It says, you have delivered my soul from death, in verse 13. Friends, if you're in here and you've ever trusted Christ, he has delivered your soul from death. You ought to be grateful for that. That's gratitude. You have delivered my soul from death. The second way the psalm ends is with faith. And you have kept my feet from falling. If he's rescued my soul from death, don't you think he can handle my right foot and my left? Don't you think he can handle the struggles and the trouble that you have today? If we know how the book is going to end and if he's delivered David and he's done all these things, don't you think you can have faith that he can handle your today? Psalm 56 teaches us we ought to have gratitude, we ought to live with faith, and we ought to have hope. It ends with hope that I may walk before God in the light of the living. If you've trusted in Christ and he's rescued your soul and he will keep your feet one day we will walk with God in the light of the living. What a beautiful song, friends. You agree? Now you understand that when those 400 people gathered to David and he wrote Psalm 34 and he talks about deliverance, he probably goes, hey guys, check this, check what I wrote right here. Look at the song I just wrote. I was afraid and God sent me you. I called out to God. I trusted in his word and he delivered. What blessings did God give you this morning before 10.38 a.m. that you haven't even realized were blessings yet? Confidence. It changes the way you read Psalm 34. It will change the way you read the Old Testament. So what do we do with it? In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And he's teaching and they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. Um, all sorts of crazy stuff. We've talked about the story. They throw her down, you know, and they're trying to catch Jesus. And they're like... Um, you know, shouldn't we kill her? And he's like, starts writing in the sand. You know the story. We talked about it a few weeks ago. And he's like, those of, those of you who haven't sinned, go ahead and throw your rock. And they all leave. And then he looks at the woman and says, has anyone condemned you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And she walks away. And then Jesus walks back over to the crowd who he was previously teaching. And he, and he goes to Psalm 56. He references Psalm 56. And he says, I am the light of the world. And anybody who walks with me will not walk in darkness but they will have the light of life. Psalm 56, how does it end? That I may walk with God in the light of the living. So what do we do with this psalm, friends? There's a lot of truths I threw at you, a lot of things I brought at you. What do we do with it? Same thing we do every day. Let's take it and go be the light of the world. Let's take it and invade darkness with light. For God has rescued our souls from darkness and will keep our feet from falling. And now we can walk in the light of the living. Let's be the light of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for a beautiful psalm. I thank you for 
the fact that your, your word is alive and well. And every word in there is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. God, I thank you that through this 30 minutes that we've had, we barely scratched the surface of what's in this book, what's in this psalm. There's a lot in here, and there's a lot of us in a lot of ways this, in this room this morning. I pray that you spoke loudly to someone in this room. As I pray every time I teach, Lord, may we walk out of this room a little bit differently in the way we walked in, carrying your light a little bit brighter, invading a dark world with light. For those who are experiencing fears and anxiety in this room, God, and that's all of us, may we know that's okay. Our fear will bring out our faith. May we have confidence in your word. May we have a new desired passion to learn your word this morning. To know the truths that are in that book that can compel us to soar. May you bring people into our lives this week who are hurting, who are needy, who need you, Jesus. And may we boldly put our right foot in front of our left knowing that you will keep us from falling. And take your light to a world filled with darkness. God, we give you today. May we walk out of this room a little bit differently in the way we walked in. It's in your name.